It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. As the day begins for most people who have nothing to do, we are here to keep you company, to keep you updated and to keep you informed with all the latest news from the lockdown and the corona fight back. This morning we'll have the first cabinet meeting of the week. Well, not we will, but the cabinet will actually, as you know. And it is a genuine first because every single minister is dialing in from a separate location. We'll be checking in with our political correspondent Charlotte Ivers to find out what's likely to come out of it uh, and we'll be bringing you the latest news from Downing Street on all all of the people that are currently suffering from uh, the coronavirus. Also, we'll be hearing from former Brexit Party MEP Alex Phillips on her journey back to the UK from Brussels, getting out just in time, and why she thinks she may have had the coronavirus when she lost all sense of taste and smell, something that many people are now reporting uh, to have suffered. And we'll be checking in on what the latest guidance is that's being given to the police after accusations that they're being a little overzealous by handing out fines to people for buying Easter eggs or other non-essential items at the shops. Most of all, as ever, we want to hear from all of you out there. Your calls are informative, interesting and always required listening. What you know needs to be shared with the outside world. So do please call us and tell us what you're seeing, uh, what you're hearing, what you're being told uh, and what your employers are doing for you as well. 0344 499 1000. I'm delighted to say that after we reported yesterday uh, that one of the big banks was making people work in an office because they didn't have enough laptops. That situation seems to have been fixed in that particular place. Uh, and also, of course, uh, we talked about Billy Joe Saunders yesterday, shortly after I uh, said he should have his license revoked. Guess what? His license was revoked. We have some great winners here at the Independent Republican Mike Graham. If you want something done, come to me. And just call us even if you just want someone to talk to. Coming up later on, we'll be talking to the co-founder of Greenpeace and now anti-climate change campaigner Patrick Moore. We'll ask him what he makes of the coronavirus situation, plus uh, what he makes of the eco-planks who are now claiming that uh, they've won the day because nobody's flying anywhere anymore. Plus, on our homeschooling section, it's all about history and how this country dealt with the bubonic plague. We'll be paying a visit to a place called the Village of the Damned. 0344 499 1000. And as usual, of course, we're streaming live on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. You can now watch us as well as listening. And you are listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it does seem to be a long time ago in that dim and distant past towards the end of last year when we were thrust into what can only be described as stalemate before the election in December the 12th, when we didn't know if we were leaving the European Union or not, we didn't know whether we had a government or not, we didn't know if we'd ever do anything meaningful again or not. And in those days, we used to talk to Alex Phillips an awful lot, who was a Brexit Party MEP over in Brussels. She's now back in this country, repatriated without the aid of a governmental jet. Um, and we're going to talk to her now live from Gloucester. Alex, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, how long have you been back? Uh, because we should have got you on before this. I can't believe it's taken us this long to track you down. I know. I think it's probably about, what, two two weeks ago I got back? Is that right? Half. All the days sort of bleed into one. They I'm do, not don't sure they? Anymore. Yeah, they do. But you had quite a fascinating journey back, didn't you? Because you got out just as they were kind of locking down Brussels. Yeah, well, the weird thing is, even about... The last time I actually saw you was three weeks ago tomorrow. Yeah. And even at that time, you know, we, we met up on College Green, we did PMQs, I was taken to London Underground. Yeah. Before we really understood how severe this crisis was going to be, but that feels like months ago now. I know, it does, doesn't it? I mean, it, I, I mean, even simple things. You know, I was saying to somebody the other day, I got very excited last week because I managed to find a shop that had some rice. <laughs> you know, and I mean, you know, I used to get a lot more excited about a lot more interesting things, but we're, we're living a much simpler kind of life at the moment. Yeah, we are. Do you know, is it wrong to say I'm kind of enjoying it? <laughs> I hope there are people, a lot of people are. listening to your show who are sort of nodding, going, yeah, do you know what, I'm enjoying it too. Mm. And it's not doom and gloom for everyone. No, I, I absolutely couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, certainly London without people on the streets is a far more pleasant place to be than when you're having to dodge people every time you walk anywhere. But tell us about how you got out of, uh, out of, out of Brussels, because you escaped with your cat, I believe. Yeah, well, it was a week after I'd been in London. When I got back from London, I thought, you know what, I think I'll probably get out of Brussels now, a month early, before my lease is up, just in case they start closing the borders. And that was the time everything started setting in motion so quickly. So I was watching the news updates, not just from the UK, but from France and Belgium every single day right. to see if they'd put restrictions on travel, close borders. And it was really on a knife edge, was sort of living by the hour. And because I was packing up my flat, I needed to convey things home in a van, not right. just I've got a tiny little two-seater car, which is not really much good for a house move. So um, my, my lovely father, who used to be a lorry driver, offered to drive a van over from the UK, pick me up with all my stuff and bring me back right. to the Shire. And, um, and, and it was the Wednesday that he, we'd, you know, organised the van and booked the Euro Channel. He turned up at the borders and the French police wouldn't let him on the train. Oh, God. They said, no way, no how, you know, picking up your daughter's not an essential trip. You're not coming into the country. So, um, being, uh, being intrepid as he is, he decided it was the perfect moment to put his skills of negotiations in French to the test, drove around to Dover and managed to blag his way onto a ferry <laughs> by telling them that I was on the streets surrounded by boxes and would be effectively homeless right. if he couldn't get me into the van, which was a, a bit of a... Um, yeah, a, but know. so they were locked down in that way that we are now, uh, long before we were, I guess. A, a week before, yeah. a week before, which in, in, you know, in COVID time is a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it's, it really, you say that, but actually it really is because, you know, when with each week that goes past, I mean, even a week ago, uh, we were less kind of locked down than we are now. And, you know, I haven't been back to Sussex to see my kids because I just feel as though it's the wrong time to go that that, that sort of distance in case something goes wrong. Well, you, know, you probably wouldn't be allowed to. You know, they'd ask you, is it essential travel? Should you be mixing with people who aren't, you know, well, that's right. in your household? Yeah. So, actually, it'd be breaking the law, Mike. <laughs> well, I do have a key workers card, though. So, I mean, you know, technically, you know, I do live there as well part of the time. So, you know, in the end, that could be the case. But never mind that. So where, so where are you now? What are you doing? Well, I decided to come back to lovely Gloucestershire because um, I thought I'd, someone's got to keep my parents in check and make sure they stay fit and, fit and healthy all of this so I've actually at the grand old age of 36 moved back in <laughs> to home but I'm basically private chef and personal trainer very nice so I think they've got a good deal out of me I'm cooking healthy food every night I'm forcing my mum to power walk for an hour every day we're doing yoga in the back garden 
it's quite nice, actually. That's all right. And are you able to get enough food at the moment down there? Yeah, it's not so bad. I mean, my parents, being the old school people that they are, have had a milkman for you know, as long as I've been alive, mm. so he's still doing his rounds. And But the annoying thing is, my mum's been grumbling because she says, I've been a you know, customer of um, Milk and More as the company for you know all my life, basically, and now I can't get eggs because other people have signed up and they're using the milkman too. <laughs> Um, but no, it's not too bad. Eggs at one point were in short supply, but um, yeah. the, the trick is, and I shouldn't tell this to the entire nation, but it's, it's about getting up early and going to the shop, you know, first Well, I must basically. admit, I mean, I, I'm sure it's much less difficult outside of London than it is here, because where I am, every time I drive into work, I drive past about three or four supermarkets and there's queues of people already outside waiting for them to open up. Yeah, I mean, we've had some queues here, but that's where you have to stand sort of, you know, two metres yes. apart or whatever it is. But it's very civilised back home in Gloucester, or certainly in the bit of Gloucester that I'm in. Everyone's obeying the rules. When we go out for our little power walk and around the local duck pond, you walk down the bit of pavement, see someone else coming, and someone will veer off onto the grass verge, and everyone says good morning and smiles, and... It's um, everyone's, yeah, I, I think following the rules to the letter of the law. I think people definitely are. And that is a big change, actually, from this time last week, because when this all began, this kind of lockdown, people, I think, weren't particularly sure how to do that and still aren't, there's still sort of pockets of stories that you see of people going out and having karaoke parties or, or you know, things that they really shouldn't be doing. But the other bit that's difficult for me as well, reading the papers this morning, is the police not being quite sure, and we're going to talk about this later on the show, what essential goods are and whether you should be buying Easter eggs or hot cross buns. I mean, surely the point is you should be able to do that. Well, this is the difficulty. Very, very stringent rules have been put in place very rapidly without much forethought to how they'll actually impact people. And a, a primary example of that is Sadiq Khan closing down half the tube services and actually funneling people all into the same carriages as a result. And I suppose the same thing happened when my dad tried to cross the border into France on the Euro Channel and they said no. Instead of being on a mode of transport where he'd be sitting in his van completely isolated, it forced him to take a ferry where he has to park up the van and go mingle with hundreds of other people in a communal space. So I think if people actually looked at especially things like logistics with a bit of logic and not just, you know, put in place huge travel impositions, we yes. can actually work out a system that suits everybody. And, and my main concern, and my heart goes out to people, especially in places like London, who live in tower blocks, yes. who don't have back gardens, there must be a way that we can organise, even if it's on a street-by-street, tower-block-by-tower-block basis, you know, floor-by-floor, apartment-by-apartment, people to get outside and go and use mm. public parks without having to uniformly shut them all down. Yes, I suppose the difficulty for the government is that they're trying very hard not to be too authoritarian, and by that virtue they have to let people kind of figure some things out for themselves, but that's not always the best way to go at this point, is it? No, and it is confusing. You know, back, back home in Gloucestershire, we're surrounded by gorgeous countryside, mm. and I would love to be able to drive my car to the Mulvans, the Cotswolds, and go out on a yomp. And I would, I would follow every rule. If I saw people, I would make sure I completely distanced myself from them. Um, but it's good for people's physical well-being and, 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 you know, psychological well-being to get out into nature. So I think we need to rethink this at some point down the line and, and, and come up with ways we can actually, well, police seems like a stringent word, but monitor and control people's use of the natural environment without having to ban people from using it altogether. No, right. And what about your little run in with the coronavirus because I saw that you, you had uh, an issue with losing your sense of taste and smell which I've now been reading is, is a definite uh, symptom in some cases. Well yeah you know this was weird it was actually I had it the last time I saw you and I can remember being on air and someone writing on Twitter Alex you sound really snuffily. Mm. Um, I had this 
sense of really bad congestion at the top of my nose, but right. without any sort of mucus. Mm. I, I felt this pressure in my sinuses, and I was headachy, I was lethargic, I had a bit of a, a, a tickly cough, yeah. not much of one. I felt run down, to be honest. I put it down to maybe a bit of seasonal lurgy and being yeah. exhausted, right. um, you know, recovering from the whole Brexit stuff. Right. Um, but the weirdest thing was I couldn't taste or smell a thing. Mm. Now, I've had colds before where you lose your sense of taste and smell. You can still just about taste some things, but you don't enjoy your food as much. Right. This was absolute. It was so So you literally couldn't exciting. taste anything at all? Nothing. I'm, when I got wow. back to Brussels, I had a few days on my sofa feeling pretty rotten, mm. living on paracetamol. Um, and I was actually conducting kitchen experiments. I was putting raw garlic in my nostrils. Right. I was putting salt and vinegar on my tongue. And I started Googling because I, I was so concerned by how absolute this was. I yeah. thought I must be having some sort of neurological episode. Yeah, or a stroke or something. Well, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't normal. Anyway, about a week later... The friend I'd stayed with in London called me up and said, um, I've had exactly the same thing. I'm going through it now. I can't taste or smell anything. I don't feel very well. I've got a, a bit of a temperature and a headache, but that's right. about it. And he said, I think you gave me coronavirus. Mm. And I said, oh, don't be stupid. I didn't believe him at all. And then, since that moment, a lot of information has emerged on this. In fact, ENT UK, who's the medical body representing ear, nose and throat specialists, including the president of rhinology, and if anyone's going to know about smell, it is her, have come out and urged the government to add this to the list of critical symptoms. They've done it in France. Yeah. They did it on March the 20th. Evidence now emerging from around the world, from Germany, from South Korea, from China, from Italy, is saying that this is a key indicator, especially if you've only had a mild case. Mm. Interesting. So how long did it last then? I think probably about a week. I couldn't taste or smell anything for about a week. And then it took a while for it to really reappear. And I, I, I wonder now whether it's reappeared entirely. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to remember how I used to taste and smell. It's not right. something that you sort of measure um, consciously. But I, I think it had gone completely for a week and I felt pretty ropey for a week. Yes, because they say you lose your appetite as well. Yeah, well, I think when you can't taste or smell anything, eating is just not appealing. No, there's not much point to it. No, it, you can sort of only feel shape in your mouth, but yeah. you, you kind of lose the desire to eat anything. Right. And I was pushing food around my plate a lot, for sure. Yeah. But since then, my cousin who lives in London, he's lost all taste and smell. His girlfriend's lost all taste and smell. Another Brexit Party MEP is currently going through it, feeling ropey, lost all taste and smell. There's anecdotal evidence emerging everywhere that I can cannot see that this is a coincidence. It, it's just impossible that, you know, two-thirds of people also testing positive with coronavirus in studies that we've had from around the world have somehow magically lost taste and smell for no reason. Yes. No, it definitely seems to be part of the whole spectrum of things that have happened and can happen to people. Because, and I I mean, I spoke to a doctor the other day who said, oh, no, you definitely didn't have coronavirus. But, I mean, I've definitely had sort of some symptoms from time to time, you know, occasional um, coughing, occasional sore throat, you know, and it went on for quite a long time back in February. Um, right. But until we have these tests, which are going to be made available, we keep hearing, hopefully, fairly soon to see whether you have had it. You know, well, there's not much exactly. we can do, is there? There isn't, but I, I do think the government need to think about really looking into this taste and smell thing. Look, if we're being so absolute in our 
averting risk with a lockdown and yeah. not even letting people buy Easter eggs or go to the Cotswolds, then surely we can put the message out there to people that if you completely lose your taste and smell in a way that is exceptional, not like you've just got a common cold, yes. but in a way that is quite startling, then self isolate because there must be people up and down the country who are feeling otherwise fine maybe a bit ropey like i was but still going about their daily life yes. unaware that they could be carrying this and spreading it to vulnerable people well that's why i wanted you to come on and explain what it was like so that if there are people listening to this today and you have the same symptoms that alex is talking about then you must please uh, make sure that you don't go out and about because it may well be that you will infect people what are you hearing from your former colleagues over in brussels i know not uh, uh, meps that you were uh, in the brexit party with but just people that you know. Is it different over there? Is it what's going on? It's pretty much the same circumstances over here, to be honest. People are stuck in their houses um, and just trying to, trying to make the best of things. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, we're all in the same boat. One third of the world's on lockdown now. I think Belgium's actually doing pretty well at managing this, according to statistics. Right. It, it seems as though they're not suffering as much as, say, countries such as Spain and France and Italy. Um, but, and I'd imagine, actually, I mean, I've, I've been out of Belgium now for a fortnight, but I would imagine it's a ghost city in Brussels yeah. because it's a city that, even at weekends, it's a ghost city when all the workers from NATO and the European Commission, the European Parliament and the lobbying firms all tend to go home at the weekends to their home nation. So I'd imagine it's a fairly quiet place. Yes, I bet. Certainly in London is very quiet as well. But hopefully, at some point or other, we will see you back here uh, on, on the other side of whatever is going on. It might be September by the looks of it, but, uh, you know, whenever we can uh, get together and the restaurants are open, we'll go and have lunch. Oh, definitely, and I'll be able to taste it, which will be... That'll <laughs> which be great. Will be nice. OK, and Alex. Do try and collect some anecdotal evidence, because someone needs to. Someone needs to really start canvassing people on yes. this and understanding what's going on. Well, that's what we're going to do today, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. Alex Phillips, former Brexit Party MEP. If you know anyone, or if you are someone who has lost all sense of taste and smell, uh, you know, let's talk about that. Let's get your views, let's get your experiences, let's get exactly what happened to you so that we can tell everybody else. That's what we do here at Talk Radio. We're live streaming, of course, uh, on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, and we definitely need your help to be able to tell everybody what you're feeling, what you're seeing, what you're hearing and what is going on in your neck of the woods. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, many of you have been tweeting me about various things. Many people on social media have been reporting uh, people being arrested. We saw the Derbyshire police, I think it was last last week, sending up a drone uh, to point out that too many people were going to a particular beauty spot, walking their dogs in what appeared to be a relatively clear and empty place to do it in the Peak District. Let's talk to Ken Marsh uh, from the Metropolitan Police Federation to find out whether there is any actual kind of uniform instruction out there, if you'll pardon the pun. Ken, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Is it a problem for the for the different in, individual, you know, police forces in the country because there's no specific instruction on what they're supposed to be policing? Well, there is clear legislation that's been rolled out by the government. It was rolled out about two and a half days ago, um, and we are getting to grips with that. It is quite concise what the legislation is. It's how you put it into practice is clearly going to be a challenge for us. And, you know, I have a large metropolitan area where I have completely different dynamics and demographics to, as you were talking about before, the peak districts, etc. We don't have anything like that. So it's, it's how each force interprets where we are, what we're doing and how we're going to do it. But, you know, I, I would add, and I, I, I'll say this quite honestly, Mike, it, it, it's very good having all these uh, 
sofa solicitors who have suddenly appeared and got every every facade of how we're meant to do something. Right. My brave colleagues are out there right now. They don't want to be doing this. Mm. They would like to be two metres plus from every single person like we're being told to be. So yeah. please bear that in mind. No, I think that's a very good point, and I'm glad you made it. But I think we ought to be able to be specific about what, for example, yeah. is an essential product. If you're out buying stuff um, and the police are going to start going through your bag... Most people, first of all, will be edgy about that. And second of all, it would be more helpful, I think, if, if the government or some organisation or maybe even the police said, you know, th these are what are considered essential products. Because we've got Grant Shapps today telling people, go to the supermarket once a week, buy the big shop and then don't go back for another week. On the other hand, you've got the supermarket saying you can only have three of everything. Right. Well, I'm not aware that's within the legislation as to what you can and can't buy. So that's the first thing. And I'm not aware of police officers in the Met going through people's bags having a look at what they're buying. Um, there's a lot of media out there that isn't quite correct because my colleagues that I'm talking to are not doing that at all, looking through people's bags. We're asking for common sense here, Mike. We're yeah. asking for, you know, <laughs> let, let's all come together here and, and work out what is right or wrong. You know what you need in terms of provisions. It's not for us to tell you that, for goodness sake. Yeah, but, but I mean, would you say to prevail. me... Yeah, well, hang on. Would you say an Easter egg is an essential item? Well, well, that was nothing to do with the police, what you're talking about. What do you mean? See, again, the police were nothing to do with the, the whole media thing about Easter eggs. Well, what was it, it was to do with, to do with, with then? The police. It was, I, I believe, environmental health officers. OK. Well, what are they doing getting involved the, in it? I've no idea, but it wasn't... Maybe you should arrest them what? instead. <laughs> this is what I'm saying to you. We need to understand what is right and what is wrong and, and how we move forward with this. Because, you know, it is difficult. It is challenging. We're not always going to get it right as cops, but we're doing our damnedest. Yes. I mean, certainly one thing that I have seen, which is I'm sure you've seen, is that police officer in Golders Green uh, who was yeah. handing out a fine to a woman who was trying to draw some chalk lines on the, on the pavement in order to safeguard her customers. And he was insisting that, well, you know, the laws don't change just because something else is going on, otherwise it'd be anarchy. Yeah. Well, what I would say to you in, on that one, Mike, I'm not, I'm not going to criticise one of my colleagues because I know the full scenario of it. And if that officer had had the correct, you know, legislation put in front, the correct training package, I believe they have about a 25-minute learning package on a computer screen. You know, it's very, very easy to, to finite individual things. Now, when that was looked at afterwards, it was dealt with correctly. It was changed the decision and, and we moved forward from it. And the lady actually fully understood the, the sentiment of what was happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I get where you're coming from, and I get the public, but, but the media are making such a furore of things that, you know, it works both ways. My cops, and I've said it over and over again, are not going to get it right every time straight away. But they're human beings. Please, bear with us. We're doing it for one reason, and that's to save lives. Sure, I get all that. But the point is, my, my I'm not criticising individual police officers or individual um, forces. What I am saying is, would it not be more helpful to everyone if there was a clear definition? I mean, you've said to me, everybody knows what an essential item is. Well, actually, we don't. Not everybody knows what an essential item is, because what if you want to go out and buy yourself, I don't know, a set of curtains? Is that an essential item? I don't know. I, I get what you're saying, and I, I, I do understand the sentiment of what you're saying. I'm not trying to prick you at all, but this is for the government to, to make clear you know, if we're talking, yeah, about I think that's kind of what I think that's kind of the point I'm making. It's not your fault yeah. if you don't know what the guidelines are. No, I get that totally, and I, you know, 
I'm with you fully. What what is essential? Your essentials might not be my essentials, and you know we could go on and on round and round the houses. But again, with the same sentiment, I think it'd be very difficult to draw up a list of what is essentials. I think they're asking for the public to use a bit of common sense here. But I get your sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I guess if something's on sale in a supermarket, uh, you should be able to buy it if you're allowed to go to the supermarket. Yeah, I, huh? yeah, I, um, I don't, you know, it's a real difficult one because, as I say, you know, your your essential could not be my essential. You might not eat what I eat. You know, there's there's huge facets to it. But I think what they're well, surely to any say, kind of food is an essential, isn't it? Well, is any kind? You well, know, you just highlighted Easter eggs. Are they essential? I suppose if you ask my yeah, wife. Yeah, if you've got children who are, if you've got children who are locked in a house and who can't do anything, yeah. you, I think you're allowed to buy them an Easter egg, aren't you? Yeah, I, listen, I'm, I, I've said it already today, I'm not the food police and I'm not here to, to judge what people can and can't buy. But I think, as you quite rightly point out, we need guidelines, very clear guidelines. And at the moment, we haven't got those in relation to what we should and shouldn't be doing around who's purchasing what. Yeah, I mean, Neil Basu today, the assistant commissioner of the Met, has written in the Telegraph that our police officers must preserve the trust and confidence of the public and maintain the tradition of policing by consent. So he seems to be suggesting that he doesn't want officers to get a bit carried away. Quite right. And I, I, I totally agree, and I've said that over and over again. Uh, but in the same breath, you know, this this is absolutely never been done before, what we're doing. You know, we're, we're asking cops around the country to go out and enforce something they haven't really got their heads around properly. They haven't had time to digest, have stated cases, to understand it, you know, everything that goes with legislation. So, again, and I, I get the sentiment of Mr Bassoon, but please bear with us because we are trying to do the best for what he's put in front of us. It sounds to me like you would not be able to make this policing of, of this uh, kind of social distancing any harder, as it were. You know, if suddenly the government came out this week and said, right, we've still got a problem, too many people are still going out, too many people are not doing what we're asking them to do, so now we're going to enforce it. It sounds to me like the police would be... That would be difficult for you guys. It would be very difficult. I mean, you've seen in, in other European countries that they have certification approved why they're out and what they're doing. I mean, we are we are so different from every other country in the world, really, where yeah. we've always policed by consent and we've always, you know, had the public with us, so to speak. We're not by force. So it's, it is very, very difficult. I, I get that totally. But we need to do something because I think it's starting to prove already that by social distancing, we will reduce the numbers. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, and what about the, uh, the the stories that have been written that the police, because of this action they're having to take, are now having to kind of ignore small crimes and other things that they might otherwise be investigating? No, I, I don't go along with that at all. And I, you couldn't show me any evidence base on that. My colleagues are still doing their 24-7 job um, that they've been doing all along. And, and I haven't seen any uh, statistical facts around the fact that we're doing less in certain areas. Uh, actually, crime has gone down and the calls into policing has gone down since this happened, so I haven't seen that. OK. And some people are tweeting me saying, please ask uh, your guests whether it's right that the police officers are out with speed cameras um, on uh, some of the roads. Well, you just, you just answered your own question because normal policing is taking place as well as what we're doing in relation to... COV-19, so, you know, we are policing. I, I can't say specific departments what they're doing, but 
policing is policing and it's happening as we speak. Yes, but I think the point that this guy's making is if there's only essential vehicles on the road, why would you be giving them tickets? Uh, well, I, again, I'm not aware of what you're talking about or where it is. I'm not aware that tickets are being issued for speeding or they're being stopped to ask where they're going. You know, you're throwing something up on a radio. I have no knowledge of whatsoever, so I can't really comment on something yeah. I haven't even well, I can tell you, I can tell you, I got a ticket the other day for going up a one-way street the wrong way, which I didn't know was a one-way street because the sign was so high that I was looking for a parking spot around a guy's hospital, and I and I was given a ticket by Southwark Council, not a police matter, but obviously that's not very helpful. Okay. Hey. Okay. <laughs> well, it's not, is it? I mean, you know, we are we're working in an emergency here. We're working in a crisis. Yeah. Handing out oh. tickets of 130 quid to somebody for going up a residential, quiet, one-way street doesn't seem to me to be the way to get the public on side. Okay, well, that, that's the council you're talking about. Yes, it is. Police, so I can't, I can't speak on behalf of the council. No, no, I'm not asking you to. I'm just saying that that's the kind of thing that annoys people. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying, and uh, you know, I. My empathy goes to you Thank in you. relation to that. Thank you very much, Ken. You're very kind. <laughs> I'll let you know if I manage to get off it or not. Oh, we'll see. Ken Marsh, thank you very much indeed. Chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation. Uh, if you're out there and about, I'd like to hear from you because you are eyes and ears. You can tell me if there are speed cameras operational, tell me where they are. Uh, if there are people giving out tickets and fines for things, tell me where that's happening. Uh, because obviously, uh, Ken's right, we don't just want anecdotal information, we want real information. And certainly one we saw in Golders Green, by the sounds of it, uh, has all been done away with and the woman has now not been given a ticket for what she was doing. So that's good news. But, you know, clearly... And I have some sympathy for the police because, you know, if they're not being told what it is that the limitations are of people buying stuff, uh, going out and getting stuff, then they're not going to have an idea. But what we don't want is these overzealous characters basically uh, rubbing their hands together and going, oh, this will be good. Uh, we'll find some people. 0344 499 1000 is the number. I will take your calls next. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I'm delighted to say that we're now about to speak to Patrick Moore, uh, who's the voluntary chair of the CO2 Coalition in Washington, D.C., uh, former founder or co-founder, I should say, of Greenpeace. Patrick, welcome to Talk Radio. Thanks for, for having me on, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. We've been wanting to talk to you for a long time about a whole series of things, really, um, and I'm really glad we've now got the opportunity to do so. But I guess we'd have to start off with what is going on around the world with coronavirus and, and how terribly it's affecting the economies of the world and the people of the world. What's your take on it, uh, and, and what do you see happening in the coming sort of weeks? I think the panic around this virus has something to do with the uh, climate catastrophe panic. I, I think that uh, the social media has got people in such a state these days that, they, that, that you'd think it was World War III. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's terrible to see people die, but then we, we're all going to die. Um, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. Uh, and and if, you, if you look at the cost of what's going on here in terms of... Uh, you know, just shutting down the whole economies. This was not done during other pandemics. And uh, in many of those, there were actually more losses. Uh, it is a case of walking and chewing gum. There's no doubt about it. You have to try to do two things mm. at once. And that's not always easy. No, I think uh, so. I but, think the problem but, but, for a lot of governments of, of the world is that they've started off from a sort of slightly lower plane. And then as the time has gone on, you know, things have kind of exacerbated themselves and things have increased in, in, in numbers. And the numbers certainly do seem to be increasing. And I think we're now seeing perhaps what we didn't see before, which is some people dying who would otherwise not have died. Yes, it, 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 of course, it's such an unknown that you can understand why people e even overreact mm. uh, to, to such a thing. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, we do know now that these medications that are being uh, corroborated as to their effectiveness, many health workers are now using this Hydro-Q substance, which yes. is unpronounceable, so I just call it Hydro-Q. <laughs> Hydro-Q is good but, for me. This is the anti-malaria drug, right? Yes, it is, and there's others too. And they're antiviral drugs, basically, mm. uh, malaria not being a virus, but, uh, but they, they are active against viruses, and they seem to be having a good effect especially as a prophylactic for health workers to prevent them from getting the infection in the first place. Once you have the infection, though, they also seem to be efficacious uh, in, some, in some instances. So anything that works... And so people who are criticising this, I, I don't understand their brains. Yes, I saw that you tweeted out earlier today that the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, uh, has issued an emergency use authorization. So I guess that would be a step in the right direction. Yes, it is, but the mainstream media is still blaming Trump for using scant evidence to push this thing as if it's some kind of quackery, when in fact there are many medical doctors around the world in China, France, Italy, and the United States who are saying it, it has some effectiveness. Yes. Well, I mean, the mainstream media in general blames Donald Trump for pretty much everything, um, of course. And you also have a situation where many of the mainline scientists, one famously in, in London, Imperial College, has had to re-evaluate his uh, original kind of worst-case scenario, which was half a million dead people in Britain, to around about 20,000. Yes, well, it, it, but in the United States, it's jumped up pretty badly. And I can understand, I see now... That, uh, that that Trump has said April 30th we'll have to continue distancing in the U.S. Yes, 
And, and we're certainly, I'm from Canada, of course, and we're certainly practicing that here all across the country. And I, I think that's a good idea. I just wonder if we should have shut things down yeah. so much because you can social distance and still work. Yes, I think perhaps because we were trying to uh, to sort of fight all all the all the all the attacks coming from all sides at the same time, there was a strategy certainly used in this country where if you'd said to me a month ago, um, Patrick, you know this is where we're going to be, I wouldn't have believed you, and I probably wouldn't have been uh, an, uh, an enthusiastic supporter of it. But now that we are here. I think we all have realised. I mean, I'm finding myself distancing myself from people on the street that I wouldn't have done just a week ago. You know, so it's yes. it's almost like your attitude changes with with the news, if you like. I think that's called rolling with the punches. And yeah. as I say, because it's so unknown, you have no other choice. Uh, this is real time. Uh, we don't have a crystal ball, and we've got to just go with the flow here. And and I think right now, caution is in order. Sure. Uh, what do you make of the figures coming out of China? Because there's been some controversy this week where people are suggesting that the Chinese haven't entirely been uh, honest about the numbers. Well, I can't see how it dropped off a cliff like that. That hasn't happened anywhere else. Hmm. They, they were reporting thousands and then suddenly it's tens. So I, 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 I don't know, though. I, I have no personal knowledge of this. I've read the reports. It, it sounds pretty fishy uh, that it could it hasn't hasn't ended like yeah. that anywhere else that I know of. No, that's right. Uh, and as you say, it's such an unknown. The whole area is an unknown, and there are probably very good reasons why why people who are not scientists and who are not epidemiologists should should give their views on what it is that we should be doing. Because I've said to people before that even in Germany, where it's normally where it's, it's said to be working quite well, the, the measures they're taking, we still don't really know if it's any better than the measures we're taking because we haven't finished yet. That's correct. And in the end, we will have learned a lot from this mm. at, at some cost, unfortunately. But uh, the, 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 these viruses and, and all of the diseases, uh, they, they have evolution, too, and they can actually evolve faster than we can. Yeah. And we just have to face the fact that they exist in this world's environment and, and learn from each episode uh, and try to find the vaccines, which is amazing that we can do such a thing. Uh, not many other animals can make a vaccine against the disease that is wiping them out. So here, here we are in, in this time in history uh, with such tremendous technology and medicine and advances happening all the time. I still think I, I, I'm, I'm totally grateful that I live in this world. Yes, I think so. And and your Twitter um, feed has science and logic, not sensation and fear as, as one of the messages to people. And something that you and I would have talked about more before this all happened was the whole climate change argument and the craziness of the of the people who want to change the way that we live. Some people are saying now, well, they've all got what they wanted. You know, Extinction Rebellion have got exactly what they wanted. Nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's flying anywhere. You know, the world is already a greener place. Yeah, that, that's great. That's a nice definition of green, all kinds of people dying. Uh, and, and, well, Extinction Rebellion is the epitome of this toxic mixture of far-left politics and religious cult, yeah. uh, all, all dressed up in those same weird-looking uniforms that are somewhat halfways between the Inquisition and Star Trek or yeah. something. Yeah, they, it's, uh, it's weird that they I all mean, like that, the uniform. That's just, that's just bonkers, and it's destroying uh, a lot of young people's minds. Hmm. Uh, it, it's really a, a, a serious, terrible shame. Just two points. It's colder now during this Pleistocene Ice Age with the sheets of ice covering both poles than it has been for 260 million years 
since the last Ice Age, which was called the Karoo. Look it up. Mm. Everything I say can be corroborated in about five minutes with Google. The other thing is, is CO2 has been lower during this era of the Pleistocene Ice Age than ever in the history of the Earth or ever in the history of life on Earth. It went down to 180 ppm during the last glaciation, which is only 30 ppm above the death of plants. Human CO2 emissions are actually beneficial in that we have restored a balance to the global carbon cycle. Read my stuff. Watch my videos. This is, this is the correct interpretation of what is happening on planet Earth today. And you have to look back more than 150 years to see the patterns of climate and, and climate change and temperature and CO2 and all the other variables. And it, it, it is just a, a terrible shame that people are being brainwashed yeah. and thinking that the, the end is coming because of CO2 and because it's too hot, when in fact the, the planet is at the coldest it's been for a quarter of a billion yeah. years. Well, one of the things that annoys me about this whole uh, argument that they make is that they basically come out with statements like, you know, the science is clear, uh, the scientific consensus is, uh, is absolutely right, uh, to which I always say, well, there was a time when most of the people living on Earth thought the Earth was flat. That means consensus means absolutely nothing, doesn't it? Consensus is not a science term. It is a political term, meaning more people ag agree on something than don't. Right. And that's a good thing. That's democracy. But the fact of the matter is, in science, it only takes one person to make an important discovery, and that's how nearly all of them have been made. Yeah. You don't have 2,000 scientists all suddenly finding out the, the theory of relativity or the theory of evolution or the theory of light or the theory of electricity. Mm. That happens with Faraday's and Mendel's and Einstein's and Newton's, you know, it, 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 and Darwin's. That, that, those are individual people who made those discoveries. And that's the same thing about science today. It's not about consensus. It is about facts. Yes. And the facts have been completely garbled and politicized and science has gone right out the window. You, you, you cannot say the science is settled on something so complicated. I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a new book called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. And the real problem with so many of the scare stories today, they are based on things that are either invisible or so remote, like polar bears and coral reefs, that no member of the public can verify for themselves by observation what the activists mm. and politicians and, and media and, and scientists in the pay of the government to make these sensations, they, they can't verify these things. Well, they didn't and say... So uh... CO, CO2 is the classic one. You can't point in the corner and say, look what the CO2 is doing over there to the climate, right. because it's invisible. Hmm. And, and no scientist has actually been able to tweeze out in an empirical way, like in direct measurement, what percentage of the greenhouse effect is due to CO2 compared to water and the other greenhouse gases. It's a very complex subject because, as I say, these things are invisible and they are a moving target. Yeah, well, they certainly didn't see the coronavirus coming. And let me finish up, Patrick, with one last question. Do you fear that the, the politicians and the climate change nutters will actually try and use what's happening now to change the way that we live? They'll use anything. Uh, they act as though we're in desperate times when, in fact, we're in the best time in the history of human civilization. Uh, this, this coronavirus will be seen as a blip, a nasty one, yes, but it will be over and life will go on. And I, I, I don't believe 
that, that they will have a big effect in the final analysis. The problem is we're in the modern warm period, and it's scheduled according to the last few thousands of years of cycles to go on for another 200 years before we would go back into something like the Little Ice Age again. And everybody thinks that's all over and that we're in a new era and it's going to, the whole North Pole is going to become tropical again or something. That is not in the cards by any history that there is in this in the history of climate. It's just not in the cards. Okay. Patrick Moore, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Mike. Coming up later in the show, we'll be going to homeschooling time, of course, as well, because we want to go uh, to a place called Eam, uh, where Miss, Mrs Fran Clifford is going to join us. It was known as the Village of the Damned, because while we're in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, um, you know, I think it was probably a bit worse back in the days of the bubonic plague, and we'll find out uh, where the final case of that happened way back in the 17th century. This is Talk Radio. We'll take loads of your calls coming up next as well. 0344 499 1000. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Coming up at one o'clock, it's Ian Collins and it's Kevin O'Sullivan. Coming up right now, though, it is time for our homeschooling section, which is proving to be very successful. Lots of people are really enjoying it. If you haven't got your children around the radio just yet, well, please do so because we're about to talk to a fascinating woman about a fascinating story. Mrs Fran Clifford from the EM Museum Museum joins us now because Eam, for those of you who have never heard of it, was known as the Village of the Damned because on the 1st of November 1666, farm worker Abraham Morton gasped his final breath and he was the last of 260 people to die from bubonic plague in that particular village, which is in Derbyshire. Let's talk uh, to Fran Clifford right now. Fran, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Now, Not I was sure. asked. I was asked to. Uh, we've been doing this homeschooling thing to help parents who are trying to teach their kids yeah. at home because, partly, just to give them a break, really, from uh, some of the stuff that they've ha- they, they're having to do. And yeah. I wasn't aware of this story at all. I must admit. I mean, I'm feeling slightly ignorant about not knowing. But um, the first thing I learned was how to pronounce it because some people pronounce it Iam and some people pronounce it Eam. So I'm, I'm told Eam is correct. Is the locals right? pronounce it Eam. Oh, Eam, okay. <laughs> so the Y is kind of silent. <laughs> Pardon? And the Y is a sort of silent Y. Yes. Oh, okay. So exactly uh, how big is Eam or Eam? Uh, well, it's, um, at the moment, it's about, um, it's not, not a very big, it's a very small village, about 900 inhabitants. Okay. Um, at the time of the plague, there would be about 750 inhabitants Fewer houses than now, but more densely populated. Yes, right. And what exactly was the illness that caused Eam to be quarantined? And we're talking about sort of back in the 17th century now, aren't we? Yes, we're talking about 1665. OK. Um, <clears throat> the, the illness was bubonic plague, which right. um, had raged up and down Europe since the Black Death in the 14th century. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great time to be alive, really, was it? <laughs> no, it was part <laughs> of the second pandemic. Mm. Um, the, the, the Black Death being in the first pandemic and then the second pandemic. Yes. Um, and is it right that it got spread to Eam because of a bale of cloth that came from London? Um, well, they think, they think it was Taylor's materials that he'd ordered from London, yes. Right, OK. Um, the... Uh, 
they took delivery of the um, cloth that came from London, which is 160 miles away, mm. and um, when it arrived, it was unpacked by um, <clears throat> the tailor's assistant, and um, he found it to be damp, so he hung it up to dry. Right. And within a short time, he was very ill with the symptoms of the plague, but yeah. they didn't recognise it at that. Um, he died in September 1666, probably a, a week or so later, um, <clears throat> and uh, buried in the churchyard. Right. Unfortunately, within the next three weeks, um, there were six more, uh, five more deaths, all within um, neighbours, neighbouring houses, four houses, and people began to put two and two together right. <laughs> and think that it was the plague. Um, and then their, their uh, thoughts were confirmed when um, the following month there were 23 deaths. Goodness. Which meant that it, within under two months um, there were 29 deaths, which was the annual, average annual figure yes. for the, the whole of the year. And I imagine it must have been very um, frightening because, of course, we are now so used to kind of 24-hour television, radio, you know, the internet. Back then, they probably didn't even know what was happening. Well, they, they knew about plague because it, it had broken out intermittently yeah. right through the ages. But um, they had... Um, it, it was a killer disease. They didn't know... Um, <clears throat> it was unknown how... Uh, it was very highly infectious, but it was unknown how the infection was transmitted. They had no reliable cure. They relied on herbal remedies. The most popular treatment was to get the buboes, which were the tumours that formed in the lymph glands, um, at the, almost at the end of their, their um, disease yeah. before they died, was to draw off the pus the infected matter from the um, yes. lungs um, before it entered the bloodstream and Wait. prevent the onset of gangrene, which, of course, would lead to sepsis. Yes. Um, that's, it was a very, very nasty disease. So if you got it, there wasn't really any two ways about how it was going to end. You were basically going to die. Uh, there were very, very few survivors of stories of people that survived after having caught it. Yes. And so did people get quarantined in those days then? Well, they, <laughs> that was the only way that they had of getting it to um, <clears throat> stop it spreading right. outside the, the, the village. Um, at the beginning of the plague, uh, when it was first uh, realised what it was, mm. um, the more <clears throat> wealthy and more influential people in the village would have fled they would have had somewhere to go to and they would have had the means to maintain their families and they would have left the village. Right. Um, we think probably about a third of the population, um, which left, left two-thirds of the population in, um, in, in, in the village yes. itself. And it um, became known as the village of the damned, which is very... Yeah. It's very sort of, I mean, I, I suppose romantic is not the right word, but it's a very dramatic yeah. sort of name, isn't it? Yeah, but they, they thought that if they prayed very hard and um, uh, kept themselves to themselves within the village, that 
um, the Derbyshire winters would kill the plague off. Yes. And, in fact, the numbers did drop. Mm. Um, but by the end of the eighth month, by the end of April, yeah. there were um, some 70 people had died of plague. But they did know that, or they thought, that um, if they could get a period of 21 days, three weeks to a month, without anybody getting the infection, yes. that, no, their prayers had been answered. And that happened in May. There were no deaths from plague in May. So not and, that different um, in a way from the approach that we're seeing today with the coronavirus, where, the, you know, the government <laughs> is hopeful yes. that, that if the numbers drop and they finally stop uh, in fact getting infected, then, then we'll be seeing our way out of this. Yes, well, um, their celebrations were short-lived because by June, when the, the warmer weathering uh, came, yeah. more and more people were beginning to be ill. Mm. And um, then it was then that the uh, pass, the rector of the village, um, uh, in the absence of the squire and the wealthy residents of the village, um, the, the next choice for somebody making decisions about their, their action was with the parson. Right. And William Mompesson was um, the rector. He was a young man. He'd only been here uh, less than 12 months. And the, in the village was also his predecessor, uh, an older man called Thomas Stanley, who was a Puritan priest. And although they, they had religious differences, um, they met together and they realised that the disease was going to get things were going to get a lot worse before they got better. Yes. And they, yeah. they realised it also that if people fled the village, they would spread it to other villages. So, so, were, so were the sort of surrounding areas relatively plague-free then? Well, they were all plague-free. Wow. There wasn't any outbreak at all. That's amazing. That really uh, yeah. is amazing. Because you could do that in those days, but not so much here, I suppose. Yeah, well, it is a bacterial disease, and mm. it's much easier to contain a bacterial disease. So you right. can't contain a virus. Right. So, um, so, the um, last, so the last person to die of the bubonic plague at that time was in this village? Well, he was on the outskirts of the village. Mompesson um, writes that there was nobody died after the um, middle of... October, right. there are records of people having been died, but I think that was the record of when the bodies were found and they were buried. Right. It's a fascinating story. And your museum there in Eme, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how I would... I mean, it's a bit like when you find people who want to move to a particular house and then they discover that there was a murder in the house and they don't want to live there <laughs> anymore, you know. So, I mean, do people move to Eme worry about the fact that this has got the history of, of the village of the damned? No, I don't know. I think they're attracted because of the village. But it's a funny thing when you come to live here. I'm, I've only lived here 36 years. So ah, OK. <laughs> I was not born is there, a, is, there a, is there a local pub? There is only one left now, yes. There were quite a lot, but mm. the local pub. Um, can I just say that um, when the two men set aside all their religious differences, yeah. they de decided to show a united front. Um, and they came up with a plan to save people outside the village and also to limit the amount of infection within, uh, infection within the village. And these were radical decisions. Right. One was the quarantine, quarantine no one in and no one out. And then they closed the church because they realised that they could be passing on in an enclosed area 
as an assembly of people could right. pass on the disease. But the the most radical was they they decided no funerals. Ah, interesting. Um, because when the victim died, um, they believed that the infection was released into the atmosphere and so um, uh, reinfected re re all the village yes. and put them more at risk. And so they were asked that when their loved ones died, they had to bury them immediately themselves in their own back gardens, in the fields at the back of the house or in the wow. road, anywhere where they could do that. Mm, what a story. The, it really is remarkable, and I'm so glad that we got to speak to you, Fran, because, um, you know, I think a lot of people will be listening to this thinking, we didn't know about that. That's amazing. So people can come and visit and visit your museum, presumably. Yeah. Well, I mean, not now, but when, when things <laughs> return to normal. No, it's closed at the moment. No, you can't spread any <laughs> coronavirus up in Eam. They've had enough, the history has been poor enough to them. But the community is always pulled together. Yes. Carried all the differences, pulled together. And the, the community spirit now and the way people are looking after anybody that's at risk and, and inquiring after is amazing. Yes. Well, you know, we're a very resilient people, Fran, partly because of something that happened back in the 17th century. Yeah. Fran, Fran Clifford, thank you so much for talking to us from the Eam Museum up in Derbyshire, the village of the damned, right? I think that's a fascinating story. I'm amazed nobody's made a film out of it, really, to be honest. Maybe somebody has. Maybe somebody can tell me. Uh, but coming up, uh, we've got some more time in the show to take some more of your calls. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.